Together with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John 15. We are in the midst of a series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We are preaching on the subject of the third person of the glorious and holy Trinity, who we call Jehovah. It is, however, Easter, but we shall continue in our series, though there may be some who have come on Easter Sunday when they would not come at any other time, expecting to hear a sermon somehow related to the resurrection of Christ. Our message, however, is not solely directed toward the resurrection of Christ, though everything about what we preach would be utterly be idiotic and impossible were it not for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. We would know no ministry of the Holy Spirit were it not for his rising from the dead and sending him to us. He would not have risen from the dead were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit by which God raised him. So we will concentrate on those issues that grow from and run to the resurrection of Christ without changing our series and our theme. This morning it is my purpose to preach to you on the Holy Spirit and Christ, that relationship that is so intrinsic in the Scripture between the second, as we call them, and the third person of the Trinity. So I trust that though you come perhaps in the midst of the study that you will be helped in knowledge and understanding the Lord and his work, and that you will be helped in heart to see the vital issue of the person and the work of God the Spirit. Follow with me as I read one verse in John 15, verse 26, and then several verses in chapter 16. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. And then in chapter 16, beginning with verse 7, follow as I read. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go, I will send him unto you. And he, when he is come, will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. 
And you see the essence of that statement. The thing that the Holy Spirit will be doing in the world will be convicting the world of their sin. But in what sense, or what is the central essence of their sin? It is just this. They do not believe on Jesus Christ. And that is the point at which the Spirit of God will be pricking their dull consciences. He will reveal to them that they are opposing God's Messiah. Verse 10. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you behold me no more. There will be no visible picture of Christ in the flesh by which we may see the righteousness of God embodied. The Spirit of God will fulfill that need in teaching us what righteousness is. In verse 11, of judgment, because the prince of this world has been judged. The Spirit of God will make true in the preaching of the gospel that great message of the triumph of Christ over the devil in his cross. And the world will know in the gospel, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord Jesus, upon whom they have not believed, and whom they now cannot see, has indeed won the victory over the devil, and he has been judged in Christ. For you see, even there, this essence of relationship between the work of the Spirit and the Lord Jesus. But continuing in verse 12, we read, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth, for he shall not speak from himself. But what things soever he shall hear, these shall he speak. And he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall declare it unto you. Again, please, let us briefly pray together. Our Father, we take within our hands and our mouths now utterly holy things. And we ask you, our loving Father, that you would grant unto us, even as we preach it, the one about whom we preach. Give to us great measures of your Spirit now, that he may indeed teach us and glorify our Lord Jesus. Help this, your appointed servant, to speak as he ought to speak. Lord, do not give account of my sins, but cover them from your view in the blood of your Son. And do not lean me upon my own devices, but liberate me by your devices. And let your people and those who are strangers to grace hear your voice in truth. Grant this to us, our God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to concentrate this morning, if God will allow us, on Christ and the Holy Spirit, or on the Holy Spirit and Christ. And I've divided this sermon up into three simple parts. First of all, 
I want us to think together about the work of the Holy Spirit in the anointing of Christ. Second, I want us to think of the place of the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ. And third, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Christ. First of all then, the work of the Holy Spirit in the anointing of Christ. And what I'm essentially doing is laying before you the gospel. All those historical events and their significance essential to the message that saves sinners from their sins. The anointing of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Turn with me please to Acts chapter 10 verse 38. Acts 10, 38. The Lord said to the apostles, there were many more things he wanted to teach them, but they could not bear them. And so this section in John's Gospel, which is, provides the textual basis for our series on the Holy Spirit, does not exhaust the subject. It was not intended to. We have to go to other texts of Scripture to build a thorough doctrine of God the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, under the preaching of Peter, we hear these words, Even Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God, was with him. God anointed Jesus Christ and was with him. And that explains how he did what he did and how he freed people from the devil. But others have suggested that the anointing of Christ has what some have called three grades, three degrees three levels, and I think it's a good breaking down of Scripture to define it thus. George Smeaton suggested that the anointing of Christ is in three grades, and they are these. The first grade of his anointed anointing is in his incarnation, the second in his baptism and commissioning, and the third in his ascension. When the Spirit of God anointed Messiah, he anointed him, first of all, in his incarnation. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the biblical doctrine of the coming of Christ into the world. Now, brethren, the focus here is not upon Mary, though she is blessed of God and highly privileged to receive such an experience. But the focus is upon God and this miraculous event. Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1 tells us, The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. In other words, Mary and Joseph had done nothing that would have made it possible for them to have brought the Messiah into the world. 
before they even it ever entered their mind that such a thing ever would be, something happened. Before they came together, she was found with child. Well, that is absolute nonsense except for the following phrase of the Holy Spirit. And that's the focus of the text. Of the Holy Spirit. While Rome this weekend lays much attention on the physical and external aspects and the sentimental aspects of the historical events surrounding what we call Passion Week, and while we heard one on the radio speak of the great sorrow that people felt when Jesus died on Good Friday, and all the grief that occurred, but none felt the sorrow of his blessed mother. While Rome focuses upon that, the scriptures focus upon God's miraculous work to save sinners. From the worship of idols to the worship of the true and the living God, notice, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the significance of that in our discussing the anointing? Well, the first grade of his anointing, his incarnation, is seen in the fact that the Holy Spirit, in his work upon the formation of the body of Jesus Christ, has provided him with humanity. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Now we know why God prepared a body for his eternal son, who before he became a man did not have a body. He was not Jesus of Nazareth. He was God the Son. He was the second person of the everlasting Godhead. And yet he needed a body if he was going to save the sons of Adam. Why? Because God required a sacrifice. God required that Adam die for his sins. God had determined in history that the wages of sin is death. And the only satisfaction to God's righteous wrath was for man to die for his sins. But man could never ever pay with his own tainted blood for the guilt of his sins. He needed a substitute. And unless that substitute were able to take upon himself the flesh and blood which he represented in his death, the sacrifice would be meaningless. So the necessity of the incarnation of God the Son is at the root of all saving religion. And for those who denied his humanity or who wanted to have him walking around with a halo or painting pictures of him as though he were not flesh and blood, I say to them, that is not the way of their salvation. The way of their salvation in his, is in his utter and complete and perfect humanity, real man. But it is the Holy Spirit that provided him with his humanity and provided us with his humanity. But further than that, in the Incarnation, both in his conception, in which he got a body, there was 
added to that an endowment by the Spirit through his upbringing so that that humanity was endowed and gifted with all spiritual graces that would be needed for our redemption. The Holy Spirit illuminated him, guided him, and preserved him. We don't talk about that much. We don't think about the ministry of God in Messiah from his babyhood up to his maturity. But the scriptures speak of it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And see the anointing of Christ by the Holy Spirit in equipping him for what was lying ahead in his work. In Luke chapter 2, and by the way, Luke is an excellent source for the study of the work of the Holy Spirit, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. He is keenly interested in the Holy Spirit and his work. You can hardly read a page of Luke without running across something regarding the Holy Spirit. In Luke 2, verse 40, speaking of Jesus, after his parents had accomplished all the things according to the law of Moses under which they lived, they returned to Galilee, their own city, Nazareth. And in verse 40 of Luke 2, we read, And the child grew and waxed strong, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then in verse 52, remember the experience uh, after staying in the temple and his parents losing account of him and having to come back in great anguish. In verse 52, having experienced that and gone back home to Nazareth and become subject to his mom and dad, it says Jesus advanced in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The implication of these texts is that he advanced perfectly. His growth was absolutely normal. Ours isn't. Utterly unhinged, unrestrained, unmitigated development. Perfect humanity in all of its stages from conception to adulthood developing exactly the way God ordained that humans develop. By what power? By the Holy Spirit who supplied him with all the graces, with all that he needed to be a full man. Turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 which summarizes what we've said thus far, both as to the necessity of his incarnation and equipment and the endowment of our Lord for his redemptive work. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It became him, it behooved him, it was incumbent upon him to become like 
the brethren for whom he was to lay down his life. It was fitting, it was necessary for him to be equipped in all ways like them so that he may be a faithful high priest. You see, you cannot be a priest unless you actually and adequately represent somebody. Priesthood assumes representation. A priest is one who goes to God on behalf of another who himself cannot get to God. A priest makes offerings and sacrifices for men's sins to God for men. Well, in order to be a faithful and a merciful high priest, Christ had to represent men. But Christ could not stand in the stead of men as a man representing men and dealing with men's sins unless he first be made a man. And it is the Spirit of God that so equipped him and provided for him his humanity and properly guarded his upbringing, filled him with grace, poured upon him the grace of God, filled him with wisdom, and prepared him even by the time he was twelve, which is normal to be able to discuss the great eternal issues with the scholars of Israel. As David said, I know more than all my teachers because I've given heed to thy law. What does he mean by that? That I'm an upstart youngster who knows more than my professor and I can challenge him in the classroom because he's not so smart. No, he meant all those who would teach me who do not know God's word know less than I know if I do know God's word. Those that are entrenched in the truths of God know more than the most brilliant of the teachers of the world who know not the basics of God's truth. That's the essence, that's the message of Scripture. Christ is utterly and totally equipped with all that that's needed by the Spirit. Well, this principle overlaps the second grade of his anointing that of his baptism and commissioning. In the first grade, in his incarnation, were given the formation and the endowment of his life and ministry personally and privately. But in the second grade of his anointing, in his baptism and commissioning, he is endued with power publicly and officially. Follow on with me in Luke chapter 3 as we see the public anointing of Christ by the Spirit at his baptism and in his commissioning for ministry. Now this is a wonderful section of scripture. We don't have time to exhaust it in study today, but I highly commend it to you for seeing how dependent our Lord in his humanity was upon the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, brethren, we're not saying that he as God developed and grew and advanced. His deity is from everlasting. He never quit being what he always was, God of God. But he did become what he had never been, man. And his manhood entered into every stage of our experience and depended upon God for its development. And God provided in his wisdom in a way that blows the intellect of modern man 
God the Father supplies God the Spirit to God the Son so that the humanity that clothes God the Son will develop perfectly and normally so that that humanity may be laid down on the altar at the proper time and be satisfactory to God the Father in its sacrifice for man's sin. It's a wonderful thing to meditate upon and goes beyond our capacity. How unsearchable are God's judgments and his ways past finding out. But in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, it came to pass when all the people were baptized that Jesus also, having been baptized and praying, now why does he need to pray? Because he in his humanity is dependent upon God, the Father and God the Spirit. What happens as a result of his prayer, which, by the way, is always heard? The heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove upon him, and a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit, in answer to Christ's conscious prayer, at his baptismal identification with the people for whom he was to lay down his life, came upon him, was sent from his Father, and we see his, the approbation of God upon his Son in his flesh as an, as an adequate and sufficient Savior. But read further in chapter 4, verse 1. And remember, he's just been baptized. What for? He's entering into his ministry of representative identification with his people whom God has given him. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led in the Spirit in the wilderness during 40 days tempted of the devil. The Holy Spirit led the Son of God in the wilderness in this arena in which the devil tempted him for 40 days and then afterwards. The Holy Spirit is equipping him and preparing him for his accomplishment of ministry. He is leading him into those situations in which he will conquer our sin and our enemy and our adversary. Now read on in verse 14 of chapter 4. After he did defeat the devil's effort in the wilderness, we read in verse 14 that he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And a fame went out concerning him through all the region round about. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He returned in the power of the Spirit to minister. Verse 16 then. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he entered, as his custom was, into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened the book, or the roll, and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim 
release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and then in verse 21 and he began to say to them today has this scripture been fulfilled in your eyes we have here the picture of the Spirit of God anointing Christ at his baptism and sending him out into the arena of the devil fighting against him, giving him the power to overcome that temptation, and in his fullness bringing him back into his hometown for preaching, and in his preaching delivering him in his ministry, having commissioned him to preach the very thing that he's come to accomplish all by the Holy Spirit who confirmed his humanity and his saving power as God-man. Now read back with me one verse before we move on in Isaiah chapter 11. Because this was no accident. This was not the Lord in heaven looking down and noticing that he was an unusual young man that could do a lot of good in Israel. We can make him a prophet. This fellow will be of good use. He's so smart he can start a new religion. Undoubtedly, there's time for us to start a new religion. So we will equip him with a little bit of extra and join with his already proven skills and make him into the head of a new religious movement. He might become the most popular religious leader of all time. That's not what's happening here. This is not God responding to what God sees going on in man. This is God fulfilling God's promises from the prophet. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, and a branch out of his roots shall bear fruit. We know the lineage of Jesse, the daddy of David, prophetic of Messiah. And verse 2. The Spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither decide after the hearing of his ears. What does that mean? It means that that humanity which as we look upon it would not be worthy to pass ultimate eternal judgment is nonetheless passing judgment because the judgment he passes is not his own as a man but it is his own as that from God the Spirit who has anointed him with that wisdom so that we who might be offended that a mere man might say all judgment is given into my hands are not offended when we understand that he came from God and was God and is anointed by the Spirit of God to do exactly that. And it goes on to describe further aspects and features of his ministry. So at his baptism and commissioning, the Spirit of God anointed Christ publicly and officially and endued him with power for his ministry. But the third grade of our Lord's anointed is seen in his ascension. There's a further work of anointing or a further aspect or development of this concept of his anointing by the Spirit 
that we need to think about in order to lay the foundation for what lies ahead of us in this sermon. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. For you who visit, it's not unusual for us to go to many texts, especially in the early stages of a series on doctrinal issues. We are not apologizing, but we are aware that sometimes that can be tedious. We just trust you'll bear with us so that you may know that the things we speak we did not make up, but they come from holy writ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7, explaining the manifold grace of God in the church, unto each one of us was the grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Well now, the measure of the gift of Christ. Christ determines what he will give to men in the church for their ministry. Wherefore, verse 8 he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this he ascended, what is it but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, what does that text, which is a quote and an exposition of Psalm 68:18, have to do with the work of the Holy Spirit? That Christ has ascended on high, and in his ascension has led captivity captive, and from that place of ascended excellency has sent gifts to man. Well, here's the connection. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. It is the essential biblical connection. It is the redemptive connection without which none of this ever would have happened or would make any sense. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 33, Peter, speaking of our Lord Jesus as the heart of the gospel, he has said that God has raised him up, and there are many witnesses. In verse 33 of Acts 2, he says, Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. Now what, is, what do we see in that text? We have Jesus dead in the grave. His body is laid aside and wrapped up in clothes for the grave. We have God raising him from the dead, not just dragging him out of the tomb, but raising him from the realm of the dead. He's not dead. And in that raising, there is a, a continuum of events from the raising from the dead all the way to the ascending to the right hand of the Father, at which point Christ is seen now as pouring out his Spirit on the church and giving gifts to men. When he ascended, he led captivity captive. He divided a portion with the strong. He saw the grief and the travail of his soul and was satisfied. And he moved toward heaven, dragging in his 
betraying by his powerful work of the cross all those for whom he died from the clutches of the devil. They were captives. He came and bound the, the man of the house, the devil, and led his, and spoiled his goods and led his captives free. And in his ascension, he is seen to be leading captivity captive, whereby we are said in the scripture to be seated together with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But by what power did this occur? God raised him from the dead. And then what did God give to him by virtue of his achievement of having suffered unto death in perfect obedience and then rising in triumph over his enemies? God gave to Jesus the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that when Jesus arose and sat at the right hand of God that God said, I've got a promise I want to make to you. Someday I'm going to give you something. That's not what this means. It means that that which God had promised his son in the everlasting terms of the covenant of redemption between the Godhead, God had now delivered to it. You see, the, the fruit of Christ's death resurrection was that he was to be given the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary extent of anointing above that which was given to anybody else. He was expecting the honor of an extraordinary outpouring and anointing of the Holy Spirit of God as a reward for his obedience as God-man. Now, I don't have time to develop all that, especially for you who have not heard this preached and have not studied it. Many of our people are familiar with these categories and understand the, the biblical basis for these declarations. But all I'm trying to say is that the thing Jesus did on the day of Pentecost when he poured out his Spirit and all these extraordinary events took place to prove that this was God at work, the significance is that Christ has risen. He has been raised from the dead and that's God's approbation and stamp of approval on his death. Not just that God says, yes, I admit that he died, but that in that death the sins of his people have been dealt with. God accepts the sacrifice. Your sins are gone. Christ has been raised as proof that his priestly work is acceptable in heaven and every man, every woman, every child may come to God through him, plead for mercy, and have his sins washed away. That's the gospel. And it is at that point where he is given such a measure of the Holy Spirit to pour out on his church that now we know Jesus must be Messiah because to no one else was such a promise ever made. It was to Messiah that God promised this privilege of giving the Spirit to the church. So when he gives it, we see that connection between the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ in his ascension. So it is he that is receiving that which the Father had promised him. And in that we stand amazed. So, so you see the three grades of the anointing here? There's this necessary anointing of Christ's humanity and equipping of him as he develops. There's the necessary anointing of Christ in his baptism and commissioning him for his ministry so that he may not judge after his ears or after his own mind and heart but that God's judgment is what we see coming from his lips. And then there's this extra anointing in his ascension where God gives him the spirit 
without measure. Well, that leads us in the second place then, having laid this groundwork in the anointing of Christ and the work of the Spirit to consider the place of the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ. The place of the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ. And again, I've divided this up into three subheadings. First, the place of the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ is unique. Second, it is necessary. And third, it is concurrent. And we'll define that in a minute. First of all, the place of the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ is unique. And then what do I mean by that? Well, the text we read in Ephesians chapter 4 said that he gives gifts to men according to his measure. He gives to one man this gift, to another man this gift, and to some men he gives greater gifts than others. We are taught that we ought to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but let each man use sober judgment, not thinking of himself as more gifted than he is, not running when he hasn't been sent, be of humble mind, seeing how God's equipped you, using that equipment to the best of your gracious ability, but not trying to be bigger shot than you are, and certainly not diminishing what God has given you, but sober judgment. But in Christ, the Spirit didn't do that. The Spirit was not given to Christ, meted out in portions. He was not given a part of, a portion of the Spirit. There's a uniqueness in the relationship between the Spirit and Christ that is not applied to any of the rest of us. To Christ was given the Spirit without measure. The Scriptures have taught us, and we won't go to all those texts, but to Him was going to be poured out the Spirit without parting out and measuring but the utter, copious, total outpouring of all the Spirit of God upon him and the giving of all this, the Spirit of God to him in a way that cannot be said of any other man that ever lived. In Psalm 45, 7, we're told, Thou hast been anointed with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. There's a uniqueness in the relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit that cannot be duplicated and never intended to be duplicated in this world. But in the second place, not only is his place in relation to Christ unique, but his place in relation to Christ is necessary. And we've already seen something of that and already asserted it, but think a minute. The Spirit of God is utterly necessary in Christ's saving work. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and just look at a passage. A very brief word in this passage. Romans 8, verse 2. The source of Christ's saving work is the Spirit. Verse 2 of Romans 8 says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. How is it that Christ, in his work, frees me from this law of sin and death by which I'm condemned? How can I say there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Because I can say, I walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. In fact, I can't say the one without saying the other. In other words, everything that Christ has done in his saving work 
has as its fountain the supply and the work of the spirit of life which is at work in him. It is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus by which I am able to have confidence that he has done his work. That's the, that's the way he did his work. In the spirit. Just two aspects of his saving work. You remember a passage in Hebrews? Don't turn there, but in chapter 9, verse 14, he offered himself by the eternal spirit. In the very offering of Christ on the cross, he did it in the power and the supply of the Holy Spirit. His sacrifice was by the Spirit. You say, explain that to me, Pastor. I can't explain that to you. But the thing that made it efficacious, the thing that put heaven's dew upon it, the thing that supplied the capacity and made it reasonable and made it work was that the Spirit of God was in it. It was more than just a man offering a man. It was, it pleased God to bruise him. This is a work not of a martyr, but a man from God. This is God's work. It's not a tragedy. It's the work of God. It's not an accident. It's the outflowing of an everlastingly gracious plan. Don't diminish. Don't look at the cross and feel the obligation on all day Friday to feel sorry for Jesus. Don't try to reduplicate what you've seen there and walk around with a couple of tuba whores on your back as a way of so-called reenacting such a, an unrepeatable act. How can a man in the Philippines have a nail draw, driven in his hand and hang on a piece of wood and be thought to be reenacting what only God could do? It's the same reason we will not allow statuettes as aids to worship. Because they do not aid us in worship. They, they deter our spiritual vision from an invisible God to a visible piece of work of God. Actually, a work of man. They do not aid us to get to God. They get in the way. Just as a relegation of the death of Christ to some unfortunate human pathos and a limiting of it to an, a very good man who for a portion of time was really in a, in a mess as a victim is, an un, is unworthy of the whole purpose and nature of this thing. This is God making an offering on an altar appointed by God for poor sinners sitting in this place today. And you see, it's the Spirit of God that is the source of that saving work of offering Himself. But also, look right in Romans 8, if you still have it turned there, verse 11. Speaking of the resurrection of Christ. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. And then in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit 
raised up Christ from the dead. So that in those two cornerstone historical events wherein rests our faith, he was delivered up for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification. We have the Spirit of God at work. He offered himself by the everlasting Spirit, and it was by the Spirit that he was raised from the dead. So the Holy Spirit is necessary as the source of Christ's saving work. He's also necessary, though, for the fruit of Christ's saving efficacy. He was necessary as the source of Christ's saving work. He is also necessary for the fruit of Christ's saving efficacy. How in the world, as we even heard this morning in the introduction to this book study, how in the world could the death of Jesus have anything to do with you? How does it, what, how does it do any good to you? Even if he died, and in his own mind when he died, he intended you to be saved by that. What happens if God doesn't come and apply that to you? What fruit is there to his saving work and the efficacy of that work if the Holy Spirit doesn't come? First of all, the Spirit was part and parcel of the promise to Christ that he would be able to give him by virtue of his death. Well, then we have God backing up on his promise. But second, the reason that was a part of his work is because the Spirit is necessary to effectively apply his saving work to us. God gave his Son for us. He gives his Spirit to us. We could go to lots of passages of the Scripture, but let's turn to one in Galatians chapter 3 and let us do it as quickly as possible because our time is drawing near to a close. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Now you see the two linked together here, the death of Christ, his redeeming work, and the work of the Spirit upon us. The giving of Christ for us and the giving of the Spirit to us. In Galatians 3.13 we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. But he did that so that what would happen? That... Upon the Gentiles, upon the nations of the world, those who had been outcast from the commonwealth of God's kingdom, that upon them, or us, might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus. Christ died so that people who never even heard of Israel and the law of God and Moses would have the promise of Abraham, the head of the Jewish nation, the father of the faithful, the blessing of him to come upon us. How do I get Abraham's blessing? I'm not a Jew. Christ died so that I would get it. But what is the blessing of Abraham that I got? It reads it in the last part of verse 14. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's why Peter says, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is in Christ Jesus that the Spirit is given. It is, in fact, the purpose of Christ's redeeming death that we get the Spirit. Because it is nowhere but in the Spirit of life, in Christ Jesus, that we shall be alive. There is no hope of our future resurrection unless the 
Spirit of God raise our mortal bodies as he did Christ. Our hope is not just in the historical fact of Christ's death, not even just in the historical fact of his resurrection, though both are utterly essential, not even in his everlasting or his great ascension into the right hand of the Father, though that is essential for our salvation, but Fully, our hope is in the fact that God the Spirit in his name has come to apply all the virtues of his character, all the benefits of his obedience to all of his people who believe on him. And that Spirit is by which you will get to heaven. The efficacy of his saving work is made so by the Spirit who is necessary in his relation to Christ for our everlasting salvation. I wish I had more time to develop that, but I must move on. The place of the Holy Spirit in relation to Christ is unique. It is necessary. It is also concurrent. And the only, I chose this word, I looked it up in the dictionary to make sure it was the appropriate word, and it is just right to say what I want to say. On the one hand, Christ is seen in the scripture as needing the aid of the Spirit. That's what we've said. Isaiah 11, he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He returned in the power of the Spirit. In Acts 10, he performed miracles by the Spirit. He gave commandment to the apostles in Acts chapter 1 by the Spirit. He needs the aid of the Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 48, we're told that the Spirit sent Messiah. He needs to be sent by the Spirit. However, on the other hand, we also see Christ as one who in Revelation 3 has the Holy Spirit as one who, in Acts 2, gives the Holy Spirit, as one in John 15, will send the Holy Spirit. You see the two sides of it? Here Christ is sent by the Holy Spirit, cannot do what he does without the Holy Spirit, is continually, completely in his humanity dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and yet he's the same one who sends him, pours him out, gives him, and has him. Well, which is it, Pastor? Who's in the lead here? Who's in charge here? Is it Jesus telling the Holy Spirit what to do or is it the Holy Spirit helping Jesus do what he needs to do? The answer is absolutely yes. Both. It's another one of those biblical circles of beauty that you just, you just keep going around it and around it and falling in worship to God. It's the, I don't have time to go into the whole interaction of the Trinity in this. We haven't talked about the Father's relationship here and I don't do that because we want to demean that. We just don't have time for that today. Systematics require that you do it one at a time. And here we are, with our limited time, looking at one aspect of a relation between God the Son and God the Spirit, by which both are concurrent in their work. The Son effects redemption in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit imparts life and holiness in and through the Son. It is the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The Son accomplishes our redemption in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit applies the redemption of Christ to us. You never have one without the other. You don't have the Spirit and not have Jesus. And you cannot have Jesus and not have the Spirit. We must say more about that in a later time, but you cannot be a Christian and not have the Holy Ghost. All that are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. 
If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. If you're not in that Spirit, you're not in the body. So none of this rubbish of I've been saved, but I don't have the Holy Spirit. No, you can't. That's, that's a contradiction of terms. None of this, well, we rejoice, brother, that you believed on Jesus. We just need you to get the Holy Spirit. Let me pray over you. Brother, the Holy Spirit's doing that already. Already got an intercessor. I don't need that. Get your hands off of me. I've had the hands of God upon me. I would never have been able to believe upon Christ if the Spirit of God hadn't led me. And when I believed upon Christ, there was another aspect of the Spirit given to me. And I don't even understand all that, but don't separate the Spirit from Christ. He will glorify me, we read. He will bear witness of me. You'll never hear the Holy Spirit speaking except expounding Christ and His person and His work and His application. Don't give me any of this. The Spirit of God told me. And you come up with a doctrine that is not true to biblical gospel teaching. Can't do it. The Spirit's the one that sealed His birth, His life, His death his resurrection, his ascension, and came from that to us and in every way teaches and, prom- and, te- and witnesses to and glorifies Christ. We could go on and on, but we need to hurriedly go to the third major point. We've seen the anointing of Christ by the Spirit in his work. We've seen the place of the Spirit in relation to Christ. He's unique. He's necessary. His work is concurrent with Christ. But finally, consider with me the purpose of the Holy Spirit in glorifying Christ. And I think we've said a good bit about that. But let me just suggest that the Godhead purposed in eternal decree to save sinners. In all the work of the three persons of the Trinity, each person goes to great lengths to provide for the honor of the other. When Christ laid aside the invisible insignia of his deity and took the form of a servant, the Father proclaimed from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. The Son was careful to point out that the Father was the one who is greater than I. I seek not mine own glory, but I honor the Father, he said in John 8. Likewise, the Spirit is here to glorify not himself, but the one whose advocate and vicar he is. Brethren, the Pope is not the vicar of Christ in the earth. The Pope has no right to go washing feet once a year in the place of Jesus. The Pope has no right to receive confession of sin and give them absolution and grant forgiveness. He is not the representative of Christ in that sense in the world. When the Pope preaches the gospel of Christ, when the Pope glorifies Christ, when the Pope preaches that the only way you'll ever get to heaven is in trusting the Lord Jesus and Him alone, when the Pope tells you your sins can never be overcome except in Christ, but in Christ all of them are taken care of and there needs to be added nothing to it, then He'll be representing Christ. And not until. And I doubt that he shall accomplish that in this world. You see what we're saying? You say, well, you're making fun of another religion. Well, what do you want me to do? 
You want me, after what we just saw in the Bible, to pretend that it's okay to believe either way? That Christ, on the one hand, is sufficient to save you, but on the other hand, that Rome is okay when they say he's not? What if I've just dismantled every hope I gave you in the beginning of the sermon? If I love your soul, you want me to vacate what I just established and tear down what I just built and make the grace of God of none effect. I cannot do it. I shall not do it. I don't like it when a preacher talks critically about other religions. What do you like? What is it you do like? Do you like it when he won't tell you how to be saved? Or if indeed it matters not what you believe and what you do, but you shall be saved, pray tell why did you show up today? You don't need this. I'll tell you why. Two reasons. Something in you knows you do need this. And God brought you. Because He knows you need it. I tell you, the Holy Spirit is an advocate of Christ. He is the vicar of Christ. The Father gave His Son for us and His Spirit to us. That great promise has been fulfilled. Everyone that has the Son of God has the and everyone that has the Spirit has the Son of God. This, brethren, is what separates Christians from everybody else. Listen to me as I bring this to a close. Hear this. This is what I want to get to. I wish I could make it make sense to your mind as it makes sense to my heart. They are not Christians because they believe certain things, though they must believe certain things to become Christians. They must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not in itself what makes one man a Christian and one man not a Christian. Believing certain things. I know people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord who, according to the way they live, give no evidence that God has saved them. And the Bible testifies as well to the same. They are not Christians because they were baptized into a Christian church by a Christian minister. Though every Christian ought to be baptized. They are not Christians because the media calls them so. The Lebanon Christian faction versus everything else that's not Christian, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. Basically, in the media, you're a Christian if you're not a Jew, a Muslim, a Buddhist, or something else. Well, in the Bible, that's not the way it works. They're not Christians because they call themselves Christians. You're not a Christian because you said you're a Christian or you're convinced you're a Christian or you know you're a Christian or somebody else told you you're a Christian or because the evangelist granted you absolution at the altar and said you are now saved. That doesn't prove you're a Christian. They are Christians because the Spirit of Christ dwells within them. They are led by the Spirit of God. That's how they become sons of God. They know God. Briefly turn back with me to John 14, to the section of Scripture which has become our text for this series. John 14. Verse 17. In the Lord's giving of the promise of the Spirit to come. He says in verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholds him not, neither knows him. You 
know him, for he abides with you and shall be in you. There is a difference made between those who are gods and those who are not, the world and the church. What is the difference? They do not behold or know the Holy Spirit. You do. How do you know? Because he will be in you. Now, I know we could distinguish between Christians and non-Christians and lots of other biblical categories. But this is an essential distinction. This is underlying everything else. There's a reason why some love the hymns of the faith and are content with the lyrics of biblical truth even if the melody doesn't make their spine tingle and their foot tap. Who can rejoice when there's not a choir, not an orchestra, not a piano, and not even anybody around that can carry a tune in a bucket as long as the words speak music to their soul from the Lord Jesus. Who do not come and check out a church to see if the hymnody reaches their spine but looks to see if it reaches biblical essence of truth as it is in Jesus. There are some people that are content and happy to sing words of life with a whole heart. And I tell you, even the worst melody writers can be overcome by that kind of spirit. I believe in melody. I believe God included it in the whole plan, just like he did math. I believe, it, I believe you ought to write the prettiest and the nicest and the most appropriate melody. However... I can do it without them if the truth is there. I'm doing without it with 150 songs in my Bible. God didn't put a single musical note there as far as I can find any of it. And yet I read my psalms in the morning and my heart soars. Don't bring me somebody on the TV to jack up my soul with sound. Bring me my Bible. Write down the words of truth and let me see them. Let me hear them. That's music enough for me. What makes the difference between people who are content to sing old hymns that are not contemporary the way our teenagers like them? Your teenagers ought not be letting, getting to listen to that junk. That ought not be in their bedrooms in your house. You're the reason that they think the church has to give them that stuff because you gave it to them. Take it away from them if it's bad stuff. Teach them a higher view. What makes the difference? Some people have God living in them by His Spirit. And the rest don't. The world cannot receive Him. They don't know Him. And everything I've said this morning, I've said to some whose ears cannot receive it because the Holy Spirit Spirit isn't there. And those that heard it and whose heart said the amen to it and who knew it as their joy and delight and hope did so because of the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian if the Spirit of God dwell in you. Christians have more than a religion, brethren. They have the living God. They haven't adopted a religion. They've been adopted by God and been given the spirit of adoption. They haven't converted to Christianity. They've been converted by Christ the Spirit. Theirs is a religion of the heart as well as the mind. For them, the resurrected Christ is their daily portion and delight. 
not a mere holiday. The reason that we're here every Sunday and the reason we didn't change the order of worship and add a few candles and do something extraordinarily different because it's Resurrection Sunday, the reason every Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday because we do not worship one who one time in the past reportedly may have come out of a grave. We worship one who meets with us because he lives in us. That separates us from you who don't know why we're here and why we didn't do something different on Easter. Imagine we didn't need to do anything different on Easter. We couldn't have added a bit of delight to us today by changing the worship. Because what we felt last week and what we'll feel next week is based on the same truth and never changes because the world once a year gives a bit of lip service to something they couldn't, they don't bear to think about the rest of the time. It is the Spirit of God in a man that changes everything. You can't see him, you can't control him, you can't predict him. He must be born of the Spirit. What we preach makes no sense to some of you because he has not done his work in you. The gospel of Christ's death for sins is not precious to you because you don't know the Spirit. You don't hate your rebellion against God who made you because you don't know the Holy One who is purer of eyes than to behold iniquity. You do feel your estrangement. You do carry a burden of guilt and fear around with you because of your transgressions of God's law. Your adulteries haunt you. Your lies testify against you. Your pride controls you. Your self-centeredness has made you unhappy. The world has disillusioned you. Your friends have disappointed you. You know that your life isn't right. But it is God's Spirit that must make you see the root of your problem. You see, God is real. You've sinned against Him. The Bible is true, and God's wrath is upon you. That's the root of your problem. It is also God's Spirit that must show you the only escape from your problem. Christ came for you. Christ died for you. Christ arose, conquering the death you so fear and dread. It is Christ that today lives. It is Christ who is inviting you to himself by this sermon. It is Christ that is commanding you to repent of what you've done against the Lord, to believe upon him with all your heart, to bow to him, become his servant, and enjoy and worship him forever. It is the Spirit of Christ who is now searching your heart and tugging at its strings and saying, Come. That thing stirring you as you sit and hear is God the Holy Spirit. Do not resist Him. Obey His voice. Lay down the heavy load of your sins. The, the load you've borne for so long. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy and you shall be saved. You shall know the one about whom I've been preaching. May God the Spirit so work in the hearts of this congregation that many of you will be able to leave saying, I think I know. I believe I understand. May God give me more understanding. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. May God transfer some of you from darkness to light. 
and from death to life. And I tell you, I'm utterly dependent on God to do it. We don't offer you any afterward gimmick here. We don't offer you a lengthy time of our attempting further to persuade. We do welcome your calling and asking for help. But what we offer is the promise of Christ in the gospel that where you sit, before you leave, call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to have mercy on you. And we pray to God the Spirit that he'll come and make this bound to your heart and save you from your sin. We invite you to Christ. We command you to repent in the name of Christ. And we promise you by the word of Christ that all who truly do will not be disappointed. May God the Spirit be pleased to own this message to our hearts. Let us pray. Our Father, it has been sweet and good just to brush across these wonderful truths. And it has been precious to preach it to a congregation full of people who love to hear it. Lord, we've enjoyed fellowship together just in these matters. And we thank you that we have not been sitting as dull and lifeless and not understanding. Oh God, what mercy and grace it is that we should have comprehended some of what we heard. That we should have known that it's true as it rang in our hearts. That our hearts burned within us as we talked with you and listened to you in the way. Thank you, our Father. We pray for more light, for more understanding, and for a greater heart to love these things. But Lord, we do now officially and formally ask you for those who are strangers to Christ in this place. Oh God, do your work and make them say, I could not save myself, but God saved me. Oh Lord, come, answer the prayers of your church. Oh God, hear us for the glory of your Son and your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.